Welcome to episode three of the As It Really Is podcast. We are currently in uh, near Santa Rosa Beach in Florida, and uh, you'll be hearing quite a few different urban environmental sounds. Yes, our YouTube listen. sponsors flew us in. So yep. Yeah, totally. to this special location. Totally. <laughs> yeah, watch out for the voice cracks as well, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this, uh, this episode will try to focus on some of the ideas presented in and around the, uh, the book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, written by Dr. Rick Straussman. In the what 90s. Year, what year was this book, though? 93, maybe? I'm on it. <laughs> Aiden with a laptop. Jamie, pull it up. 2001. This is copyright 2001, but I swear. Well, he did the studies in the 90s. Yes. Yep. Yes. He kind of revived. Um, yeah. yeah. January 1st, 2001. He didn't revive it, but he, he, he was definitely one of the um, one of the few people at a at a research university that was allowed to use any kind of yeah um psycholy psychoactive substance in any kind of you know extended research studies um hmm. so kind of just like to introduce uh the author so rick strassman he is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the university of new mexico school of medicine he has held a fellowship in clinical psychopharmacology research at the University of California, San Diego, and was professor of psychiatry for 11 years at the University of New Mexico. So, And I believe that's where the studies took place. At their, They have a research hospital at the mm-hmm. University of New Mexico, mm-hmm. and that's where these um, DMT studies took place. Yeah, so I, I read a page where one of the test <coughs> subjects was like, Rick, is this why you got into psychiatry? <laughs> Just give this to people. He was like, oh, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life, a life dream to be able to do something like that. Yep. Took took many years to... When everything was forced underground in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's just beginning to pop back up. Yep. Psychedelic exactly. research. Definitely was off the map for probably... Yeah, totally, 20 totally early 90s. 20, 20 years, probably. Yeah. Well, the uh, what was the what was the law? It was nineteen seventy. The mm-hmm. drug um, anti drug act or whatever. Sure, nineteen seventy, like something like that, mm-hmm. something along those lines. In nineteen seventy, and so yeah, and all uh, of human history, and then nineteen seventies. Yep. <laughs> yep. Here we go. This abstract year, just boo. Yep. Twenty year dry spell. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't even remember if DMT was included on. I don't schedule think it one. was. I don't even think was it MDMA was included. included? I think it was later added. Yeah. Um, like 18 months later. It was later. just psilocybin, LSD. Because there, were, there, was, um, there was a panel, I remember there was a panel of scientists, this is in the book, um, mentioned one of the early chapters. There was a panel of scientists that had um, presented some uh, counteracting, you know, kind of a, a counter-argument to the, that initial um, blow to, you know, to place so many drugs as a Schedule 1 through Schedule 2. Um, they had kind of fought back against um, some of the hallucinogens and, and psychoactive substances, um, you know, just for research purposes, so they could continue to do research and um, on them. And they were denied, and it was it was placed on there. It was I think it was I think it, they might have had about a year where after the initial act, they were still allowed to because they were not classified yet, uh, DMT among other psychoactive substances. But then they eventually added those as well. Mm-hmm. I think about in seventy one mm-hmm. or. Um, yeah, so I guess you read the book, the most recent. Most any, recently, yeah, I'm just trying to think it. of any points to start. Um, well, just go from the beginning, I guess. Yeah, so I guess just a brief overview of the book. Um, so the way the author, Rick Strassman, kind of has it set up is that he kind of uses this building block structure. So he kind of introduces the reader to... <coughs> It kind of takes a, a step in the future a little bit, and he introduces the readers to the fir- very first DMT um, sessions that he uh, did with, um, I believe it was two volunteers. Yes. Um, intramuscular DMT, so injecting it in, I believe it was the shoulder muscle or something mm-hmm. like that. And they, I believe it was um, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram of uh, DMT. 0.06, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so those were like the very first um, sessions. And then uh, they decided to go the intravenous route. Those had, had null effects, right? 
not null effects, but definitely um, not negligible either. It, it just like very mild, very mild psychedelic effects. So they just, uh, Mr. Strassman decided to uh, make a sh the shift to intravenous, and still using the 0 0.6 milligram per kilogram method or uh, dosage. And uh, basically, the volunteers, they didn't overdose, but it was... Close. Yeah, it was, it was fairly Extremely close. powerful. Um, very Can you powerful. overdose on DMT? Uh, I don't know if anyone has. What does that mean? Yeah, right? right. What does it mean to overdose? Well, fatal. Fatal. I don't, I don't think there are any recorded fatalities from overdosing, but I could be wrong. Also, we should probably start with defining what DMT is in the first place. You want to go ahead and... Oh, let's wait for this uh, chopper in the background. Highway <laughs> 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 to the Turks being outside <laughs> on the beach. Okay, so DMT is dimethyltryptamine, and I don't have the chemistry of the thing pulled up, but you can go Tryptamines are close to what serotonin? Serotonin it almost in the exactly almost completely in the makeup. To yeah, serotonin. chemical makeup. And they have... Colin's um, taking a look at the uh, visual examples that Strassman provides, mm -hmm. um, probably 30, 40 pages on in the book, of yeah. the differences between psilocybin and different psychoactive compounds. Yeah, the difference between... So, uh, many psychedelic drugs have tryptamine in them, and serotonin, the only difference between a tryptamine and serotonin is one more oxygen atom. So, one more oxygen atom. And DMT has... Two. Uh, is this yeah. an, an NDMT that you're looking No, this at? is dimethyl. Okay, dimethyl. Uh, yeah, so two methyl compounds and or groups and mm -hmm. then trypt tryptamine molecule. And it's an endogenous molecule in your what, gut? And also... Your, oh man, I don't remember the exact areas, but it's found in numerous places throughout the right. body, numerous mm -hmm. organs. But and it's thought to be produced at birth... At death, perhaps in dreams, mm -hmm. Not through via the pineal gland yes. during near death, which experience. is the hypothesis. Yeah. yeah, yes, currently the hypothesis, um, which that's located in the pretty much the center of the brain, yeah. which is the pineal gland. Um, and I and I read that the highest concentration of serotonin is located in the pineal gland, the size of your fingernail. Hmm. Majority of your happiness, right there, <laughs> like that. And something brain damage. Something interesting about where it's located in the brain, um, aside from being the center, I don't remember what, um, there was a, I don't know if it was 14th or 15th century, uh, either explorer, I think it was an explorer that called it the seat of the soul, mm -hmm. the pineal gland. Very early on. Is it on. Descartes? Or? Mm -hmm. It may have been Descartes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I can't remember who. It's Descartes, definitely sorry. It's definitely quoted in the book. <laughs> Descartes. Um, but I cannot remember. Um, I want to get to that later on. Sure. Yeah. But in the seventh chakra. Another thing that's interesting is this is since this substance is it's such a when it's given intravenously in these high dosages, the brain is unable to counteract it because the brain is constant even though it's it's constantly being produced, even in dreams, DMT is constant whenever it's, it's introduced um, into the um, uh, you know it goes past the blood brain yep. barrier. Yep. It's constantly being counteracted by the brain. It's being dispersed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why it requires these. That's why it's the length of the experiences that are described in the book throughout are in real time last only f between five to ten minutes the, the peak um, because it's the brain is constantly whenever it's introduced in those large amounts it's constantly being dispersed um, I don't know how I was going with that but yes so do enzymes break it down or how does, I believe, how does that work I believe it's enzymes uh, that are located in the brain mm -hmm. um, and that's what keeps you from that's what regulates DMT release and that's I think that's I don't know if it would be an issue of that or some spontaneous event that can sometimes lead you know people having um, you know very uh, vision like and mystical like dreams very you know uh, unusual dreams that they have not had before which you might want to go into as you experienced one right somewhat recently in the past couple months or so well, do we want to go into that right now, or do we want to continue with Strassman's research? Let's do. Let's continue with this research. Yeah, I, I can just continue that. with the overview, and then you guys just kind of chime in whenever. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, he entices the reader with the initial sessions, 
as we were talking about uh, the first two volunteers almost overdosed, I guess, whatever that means. Um, it was overwhelming. For it, was, them. Yeah, it was an incredibly overwhelming experience, very profound. And so uh, that's when Strassman decided that 0.4 uh, milligrams per kilogram is the proper high dosage to uh, to give to his volunteers for the any future um, sessions. So that's kind of how he opens the book. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've kind of discussed, he uh, introduces various psychedelic substances and kind of compares their chemical makeup. Um, I believe that psilocybin, the the compound found in magic mushrooms, is almost identical. Because that's a trip to me too. It's almost identical mm-hmm. to DMT, and as Colin said, uh, almost completely identical to serotonin. Um, compares their chemical structure. Um, then he kind of talks about how, in several chapters, uh, explores how it was just a complete logistical nightmare trying to get funding and approval from the FDA um, and other entities to research and experiment with DMT. I believe it took him about two years yeah, total. to eventually get to experimenting mm-hmm. with, with DMT. He had to find uh, somebody that could manufacture and produce uh, DMT um, that would be a certain quality certain pureness. quality mm-hmm. yeah exactly certain pureness I, I forget the exact number it was like 95 percent mm-hmm. or above something like that um which was fairly difficult uh, and then probably the most uh at least for me probably the most interesting of the sections hold on there's a chopper in the background give it a sec okay i think we're good so probably the most interesting of the chapters um, was the detailed accounts of the volunteers' uh, personal DMT experiences. And the way Strassman kind of divides them up, um, there are personal, transpersonal, and invisible uh, DMT experiences. And we can kind of talk about those mm-hmm. now. So personal were was the more... Oh, my gosh. That's fine. Go ahead, Nikki. So personal was the more, uh, how do you describe it, Thomas? You, you had a great explanation a couple of days ago. I'm trying to remember what he says in the book. Like the um, more... Uh, oh, th- those are the more the more uh, psychologically motivated, there you where go. they're somewhat s- explainable-ish <laughs> by... In psychoanalytic terms. Yes. Uh, by just by the person's situation, their current life situation, and, you know, things that may have been bothering them in their subconscious. Exactly. Things like that. Yep. Um, which Strassman goes into uh, some great detail on a few of the accounts to kind of review and um, analyze their each of these volunteers' perspectives, you know, that take place throughout this, you know, five to ten minute experience, mm-hmm. and some of the, you know, subtleties that they might not have picked up on as to why they're seeing what they are seeing. Um, and then the next one, transpersonal. Transpersonal. I wasn't that with the uh, communication bot. with entities. Um, I think that was the, I can't, I can't remember, I think that was the out-of-body experience. Yes, though, that was the out-of-body experience where people were seeing DNA helixes. They were flown to the center of the universe, and they were seeing the cosmos at its enti- you know, as its entirety. Who, who discovered DNA? Is he discovered Watson it under... Watson and Crick. Watson and Crick, yeah, yes. discovered it under LSD. Yes, I think he had a dream. I think it was a dream. <laughs> I don't remember which one. I think it was Watson. You or don't learn about that in high school. Yeah, I don't. Was it? Are you I'm pretty sure? sure it was under LSD. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember it was a dream, or at least the, what I read in the textbooks was. Probably tell you it's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> he woke up from a dream and he's a well. Anyway, double yeah. helix. So, whatever you were talking about. Yes, the double helix is definitely a constant um, symbol that mm-hmm. a lot of these transpersonal experiences people people are seeing, um, and then related to the invisible, they often see. Um, Maybe in relation to these transpersonal trips and the double, the DNA double helix, they see these entities as um, manipulators of that DNA, possibly. So there's there's some kind of um, constant that is discussed throughout a number of those experiences related to the invisible one. But transpersonal, yes, they're, they're usually seeing everything is one and one is everything at the bottom line. Just the... The beauty of everything, the beauty of singularity, the beauty of the cosmos, all that. Um, 
Yeah, DNA had double helix. I'm trying to think of any other um, stark imagery that he describes. So what's the next one? Invisible. And that's where people kind of claim to be seeing windows into other realities that are more real than real and are not dreamlike. So that's like the Oregon experience. Yes. You want to get just briefly talk about that? Yes. If you're allowed so to disclose that information. I can. I just won't give any names. No, of course. But yeah. a family friend uh, disclosed that he had a DMT experience, you know, when he was when he was in college. And uh, apparently he had been looking at moving to Oregon. And so when he had the experience, apparent, according to him, he spent six months in Oregon during his DMT experience, which in real time was about 10 minutes, as Thomas said. Um, again, I don't know from personal experience how true that is. Based off the book, every single experience is completely different. Mm -hmm. They can definitely range. But so they, did they, he go through childhood and through puberty? He didn't, and we didn't have much time or, to really talk okay. about it. It was just this passing, you know, oh, yeah, I was, I was in Oregon for six months, and I was, I, I was living in this living house, life. and he, he was living, again, I, I don't exactly, I don't remember many details about it. Um, you don't have to go any further than that. But, so time dilation is definitely sometimes a part of these experiences, yes. and, and that one I would call invisible. That one I would probably classify as invisible. Yeah. Um, well, here's. Yeah. Cool. Oh, I was gonna say here's my issue. How is a chemical that is produced in your body illegal? I it's, was literally gonna it, get it, to that. It's later. like well, it's like saying serotonin. That's illegal. It's illegal. Even by by virtue of that, or by dint of that fact, then shouldn't SSRIs be illegal if they're kind of acting like DMT for? SSRIs reuptake in serotonin, DMT produces more instead of inhibits. Why are they not illegal? And SSRIs do a lot more damage than DMT does. Just this it, all leads back to the same <laughs> money. The it's same a questions. great point, man. Money, power. That was actually one of my questions that the I had. The pharmaceutical again. industry, yeah. I mean it's, it's really that. It's obvious that it's corrupt and corrupt and money making is I mean can't make money off DMT really. Yeah, your doctor spends three minutes with you. Alright, Johnny, it looks like you got a broken leg, but I don't know, so I'm gonna give you opioids. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you're better. Try that out and report back to me in a month. Love Hopefully you're not addicted by that time. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much. Just get addicted to Ritalin and it's all business. And what? ADHD kids get diagnosed prematurely. That with, happens quite often, I think. Yeah. And they're like, they're spazzing out, but it's just kids being kids. Yeah, let's get them on the... Uh, not, not all the time, but majority of the time. Let's get them on the prescription list and the yeah. money-making, you know, just add them to our client list as early as possible. So yeah. then they're hooked for, you know, they're always on something. I feel like it, it'd probably be difficult once, you know, let's say you're an eight-year-old mm -hmm. and you get diagnosed with ADHD or some other, you know, um, some other kind of mental diagnosis and... You have that, you know, you're on that drug. How difficult would it be, you know, let's say you take that for 10 years, now you're 18, and you start kind of thinking about, you become more self-aware, and how difficult is it, or how, I don't, I don't know, obviously I, I'm not really, don't have any experience in this realm, um, you know, to stop taking that, or to like, or maybe it shifts. You're always thinking, now you're always thinking in the back of your head maybe that you have some, you know, you need to be taking this drug, or some drug, mm -hmm. to fix whatever's wrong with, you know, you, you don't have... Um, a basis of experience without that drug, you know, and, and you're limited, you know, in the past 10 years that would give you any reason not to think you need it. So how is it, dif how, how difficult is it to break that chain? And we'll get them hooked early. That's the, mm -hmm. that's pretty much the modus operandi of tobacco companies mm -hmm. now of alcohol, anything that's bad for you. Sugar, anything legal <laughs> sugar, bread. Yep. Process. Drug them up. Everything. Well, back to <laughs> scheduled programming, but oh. good, good little side side note there. Um, well, we we can continue really the invisible if you want to oh. go into that. So should we come back to that question at the end, or which, we, didn't which really question? we didn't really answer it? Which question? You said, "Well, how can something like DMT be illegal?" Unless did I, did I miss? Well, there's got to be an ulterior motive. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, yeah, that's the. Well, why? Right. Why do you think that is? Why are they illegal? Why is pleasure illegal? Was it really pleasure? Is DM I mean, would you say yeah, DMT is pleasurable? To that. Well, I'm just saying, like, 
Yes, I, under, I understand what you're saying. Not necessarily DMT, but just generalizing. That, could be, I mean, obviously it's a combination of factors, but one being it's just such a... There's no money in it. There's, Yeah, it, well, it hasn't been researched, really. It's a very, um, mm-hmm. very limited knowledge, and uh, it's kind of under this umbrella of of uh, substances that we don't really know a whole lot about. There's a lot of uncertainty surrounding them. Well, it's been used for thousands of years. Does Uncle Sam not know you? Is Western Uncle Sam looking out, looking out for your best interest? Well, not uh, not in Western culture, it hasn't. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where are the it's exceptions? It's been used by, you know... Uh, Shamans and South Americans and, uh, and mm-hmm. Africans. And Amazon and... There's... I mean, think of what happened in the 60s. Counterculture, you know, that kind of goes back to your Uncle Sam comment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of pathways and gateways that start opening up once... But why is that their problem? Uh, shouldn't we adopt well, the control. harm principle of as long as you don't hurt anybody, do whatever the hell you want? I mean, you, you've kind of you can destroy out of yourself if you want, but that's your problem. In terms of the, the viewpoint of Uncle Sam and just Big Brother, you're you're operating outside of their um, preferred their mental space. You are seeing okay. things as they really are. So you're saying it's about keeping the masses dumb and subdued. Submissive, yeah. Keep keep them in the same loop that they've been in for the last, you know. I mean, really not. So that you're long, saying DMT can elevate you to some power position where you're. I don't know about a power position. It can show you things as they, as they, they really, really are. are. And how is that dangerous? The threat to the authority. Well, you you don't you're not following the common narrative anymore of of the the masses of what is the common media. narrative. Or whatever the whatever you know, media is, is pushing, mainstream media is pushing, in the White House or whoever's in their you know. For example. <laughs> well, it changes all the time. The narrative is constantly changing, mm-hmm. but it usually has to do with. Well, it usually is focused on and you know, kind of one um, mainstream point of view that's not totally alterable. So you're saying the unorthodoxy of it all is what. Is the yes. problem the bugbear? Okay, it reminds me of a John Lennon quote where he's like, "They hate you if you're clever, and they despise a fool." Pretty much. Yeah. Do not outshine the master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Number one. Oh. Well, number one. Yeah, well, I think, like I was saying, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding it. There's not a lot of research. It's a pretty scary substance, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and as Thomas was saying, it definitely opens up the mind to different perspectives. And based on what the book was saying, new realms and realities that you never knew existed. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the opening quote um, at the beginning of the book. I, let me just read it. I believe it's... We do not have... Yes, we do not possess imagination enough to sense what we are missing. Exactly. So DMT, and along with other psychedelic <coughs> substances, they they show you things about yourself you never could see before. They open you up to new realities, new perspectives, etc. Whereas other legal drugs, such as alcohol, uh, caffeine, uh, nicotine, they are a good for capitalism, and stimulants. B they're no, they're yeah the stimulants, and B they numb you to reality. Mm-hmm. They have a numbing effect. They're more pleasure-based, right. I would say. More pleasure-based than hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we could kind of go segue into the conversation um, kind of just related to the brain as an antenna. And that's come something that Strassman mm-hmm. uh, talks about and Huxley as well, as we discussed in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't want to go into it you know, too much, but I, th- I think we... We spoke on it the last episode, but related to these new realities and these different perspectives, as you as you were talking about, and uh, as these people experience, these volunteers experience, and a number, you know, so far categorized into three different subsections of experience, they are receiving. What you know, it seems like they're receiving information outside of the, you know, the normal sober spectrum 
And that, that's just a very intriguing concept to me. It just goes back to the, the whole, you know, um, spigot of normal, you know, um, reality and ways of thinking. And then what, it, what is exact, what's mechanically going on while taking these substances? What's mechanically going on in the brain? Is it is it decreasing? Is it is Strassman talks about it decreasing function or not Strassman Huxley? I don't Strassman might also mention this. Is these are these substances decreasing the brain's ability to filter out non biologically motivating information, or is it the opposite happening? What's you know which one is which? Is it or external internal? That whole argument which we could go into as well. Mm-hmm. Um. But do we want to go back to this? Sorry, I don't want to segue back, but back to the invisible. We didn't really touch on that quite as much as probably you know, the information that there is in the book. The different types of experiences. Or not different types, but people seeing... And I'm going to wait for the window. Calm down a second here. During these invisible experiences, people claim that pretty much entire windows of reality that are obviously not what's going on in the room, the physical room around them, uh, take place and they start seeing what's consistent with the those would be they're often laying down or on a cart of some kind in some kind of medical bay or hospital setting nursery um, nursery some setting where they're vulnerable and they it's it becomes obvious to them at least in most of these situations that they are um, the more of the the infant or the one that's that has a lot to learn or is um, not competent or something similar to that effect. Um, but the, yeah, the nursery is a great way, great metaphor of, and definitely that's, that's what they've experienced. And they're usually aware of another presence that is one of usually, um, intelligence and warmth and love and kind of an overall positive, um, emotion that overcomes them. Sometimes they're able to see it. There was a nurse. There was an example of a volunteer that uh, experienced, yes, like a, an, an actual nursery, being in a nursery, and feeling like a child, and they could not see the whatever entity was there, but they could feel the, um, they could feel it, and they could feel the, um, this higher intelligence, kind of guard, acting, acting as maybe a guardian of them, or a, um, maybe an instructor, or a, some kind of teacher, or something like that. That was their feeling. It was purely emotional. It wasn't they didn't see anything, besides the environment they were in. Um, but yes, another one would be a hospital, or on a on a hospital bed, being wheeled around in a hospital. There was one experience where um, these entities were human, and the person actually they saw three or four of them, and they were getting wheeled down a hallway, um, in and in what looked like a hospital. And they felt this very overcoming um, love for one of the enti- for one of the people that they uh, saw, and they were not aware why, but it was an instant. The second they saw them in this experience, they felt that very overpoweringly as this person looked at them, and they were shouting things. And I can't remember any m- many of the details. We could go over them if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, some kind of medical setting t- tends to be somewhat consistent or they're always in a position of vulnerability um there was another person that was in a what looked like a control room um for a ship i can't remember if it was a some kind of vehicle they thought they were in or um a place where there were a lot of very advanced there was a lot of advanced technology that they had no idea um you know they didn't know what what it was but it seemed much more advanced than you know what we currently have but maybe it had been a hospital setting or something else but they're usually positive um i don't know anything i mean you read it very recently any other i'm sure there's a couple other ones so do we want to talk about um the types of entities that were sure yeah you could do that yeah so there were that there were there were tons based off of uh what i the experiences that i that i read about there is they took the the form of was it cactuses they took the form of um, as you said, Thomas, these humanoid beings, these sort of DMT machine elves is a term that's used quite often. Um, Another thing they are often, uh, we, we can go back more into those 
what the entities are, back to the machine elves or some kind. Of, they're usually a higher intelligence that's trying to, often trying to convey something to the uh, individual, to the experiencer, um, to the person undergoing mm -hmm. this. And it's, so it's a two-way street. It seems like a two-way street. It's not just a single... Um, they're not just being fed information. They often want to exchange information. There was That was a, a somewhat consistent um, aspect of these. So they were wanting to learn from us, and we were wanting to learn... That they were wanting to convey either technological information to, the, um, to us or mathematical, something of that effect. Um, something went back to the machine elves... Um, is there's often people witness um, these extremely complex, moving geometrical shapes that are often shown to them on like placards by these elves, and they're giving them looks, and they're showing them these ever-increasingly complex, moving geometrical shapes that are beautiful. Um, so that happens often. And that kind of relates back to the whole... Whatever those... Um, Increasingly cosmic and universal visuals that people see in those and the trans and the transpersonal experiences, but they're very distinct. Those three, it seems to only really be those three, which I don't I don't know why. They'd it'd be limited to those or not limited. Or is a combination of, of two of them. Or that's two, yes, that that's talked about. Oh yeah, as well. It was never just one. Well, sometimes it was one personal, but oftentimes it was a combination of two. Of two, yeah. So maybe we can discuss um, the question of whether or not these other worlds were, were they real or were they just in the volunteers' heads? That's what I was exactly about to say. So moral of the story, on one side of the coin, they could be seen totally inside of their heads and this, could, this world could just be, this is it. There's no other realm. But as Alan Watts talked about, we don't see certain spectrums. We aren't privy to certain worlds. And there's much out there that we can't see with the naked eye that we can with some boost or tonic of a chemical that we can. And I don't think this is it. This world is it. That's not a death statement. That's just a general statement. I don't think this is the only world. Now, as far as if it's a everything everywhere all at once, like an alternate version yeah. of you, I don't know if that's plausible, but it could be. You could be a rock on another planet or something. Mm -hmm. And multiverse. I, I don't know if that affects you in this world or if they're just completely separate realms. But Alan Watts also said something about we do not come into this world, we come out of it. As far as we are star stuff, we are matter, we coalesce and disperse and break down, mm. and we are the universe reflecting itself. Mm -hmm. And then he also talked about, of course I'm not going to Strassman, I'm going to a lot of Watts, but he also talked about if you think that life is meaningless because the I that you identify yourself with is nothing more than a speck and that it's just this uh, separate entity from the world then you are only examining an inch of reality mm. yeah I mean there's no evolutionary reason that we would you know have come to be to perceive those other wavelengths mm -hmm. so what's to say that they don't exist right. there's, there's no and maybe we're just getting a, um, maybe these chemicals allow our somewhat limited senses, at least in that. Um, if you're thinking about it, if, if, if you're thinking that we don't have access to a lot of these different wavelengths, then maybe these chemicals give our somewhat limited senses a way of perceiving those other, so at least some of those other wavelengths in a, in, a, in a visual form that we can not really comprehend, I would say but we can experience they're mm -hmm. you know somewhat translated you know into our kind of limited visual format um, and then we're trying to further convert that that already probably converted experience of visuals down into language mm -hmm. which just makes it even more crude um, 
and that's probably explains most of the difficulty that you know any of us have discussing this or you know just kind of going into any kind of reasonable detail with any meaning you know um yeah. well going back to what you were talking about colin um it's interesting to note how uh the volunteers um they accepted so obviously we already discussed personal transpersonal invisible experiences many of the volunteers that it had the tr- uh personal experiences um accepted the psychoanalytical analysis that Strassman kind of provided because he was just trying to make sense of all these experiences you know he's hearing about uh communication with entities and mm-hmm. you know traveling to different realities waking up on a on a bed in a nursery and being probed and mm-hmm. communication but nonverbal simply emotional it he was trying to make sense of all this and Chopper. So many of the, volu- of the volunteers uh, experiencing the personal uh, experiences accepted the psychoanalytical analysis that Strassman gave them. But when it came... Oh my gosh. He's just circling. <laughs> he literally just did a bank and circled back. Go ahead. I'll wait. But when it came to the transpersonal and the invisible, where volunteers were traveling to different realms and they were communicating with entities, they did not accept that it was just some kind of subconscious manifestation of their desires, conflicts, etc. It was real. It was more real than real. And by Strassman providing this psychoanalytical framework to make sense of all of it, it almost belittled their experience. And many people got... Many of the volunteers got a little defensive, and no, and, and, and they defended the fact that their experience was real. It was more real than real, which is something that I thought was incredibly interesting. So, related to that, related to that, the person, the only subsection of these experiences where you could, I think, reasonably argue their um, you know the actual reason they exist and the, or the reason you're experiencing them would be the personal experiences because those at least in my opinion are the, are the mo- even though they're you know quote my more real than real they are the most dreamlike as in they maybe are um, you know displaying or revealing you know certain you know entities of your subconscious or subconscious thoughts that to that degree but the other two, what's the use? You know, what, what's the practical application of that information? Is it of the of the other two of the other two kinds of experiences? What what is the practical? Is it? I don't think people want to know the real God, because that's what mm-hmm. DMT often reveals to you. They just want to believe in a fairy tale story, mm-hmm. something story tangible, God. No, something tangible, mythological. The real Oftentimes. God is you out there, or it's or it's you. That's, but I think that's what's often kind of the one in everything, you know. Right, is kind of God is that. you. You are God, but mm-hmm. you also have to maintain humility. You can't exactly. It's not some prance around the earth, yeah. acting like I'm God. God. No, not quite. It's it's. Yeah, it's, I think it's supposed to be a humbling and a you know a unifying experience mm-hmm. more than a um, empowering. Well, I mean, sure, it's empowering in some some elements, but but the fact that it's more real than real—we already discussed this on the last one—but it makes you stop and wonder if this is a hallucination or a dream or something, mm-hmm. because this could be a ten-minute experience of DMT, and then boom, we wake up, mm-hmm. and you have no recollection of this, or whatever. We because are. it was so fast that you couldn't even comprehend. But it's like your cousin, six months in Oregon. No, my cousin, just family friend. Or sorry, yeah, your family friend. And six months in Oregon, and you think this is, this is all real, and then someday it's going to end, and maybe that's death. That's you waking up from a dream right before you die. And then... But the thing is, at that point, what is you? You're not really a... You're, you're nothing. You're probably not an individual. 
uh, you know. Well, what is you? Like, where where would you say you are? Or who are you? <laughs> who are you? Mm. I mean, the, just the pure abstractness of those questions and the, the amb, you know, ambiguity of those questions begs the, you know, kind of, they kind of answer themselves. What way. is the answer? Hmm? What is the answer? Well, just because they're so ambiguous and you, you can't really define them, it kind of, it almost proves your point or proves the, maybe the underlying. Yeah, who is know, the system. thinker of your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Who is the you? You're just a name. It's a little bundle of joy. You get attached a name to, and these are your hobbies, and these are your parents, and this is your school, this is your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I don't know. Because I could be, okay, so I, how, about, how about this? Why don't you so, stop screwing with that? You're kind of screwing up the edge <laughs> of that book. I, I get fidgety. Um, ra- how do you say Ramdas? Ramdas? You know that guy? No. Anyway, okay, so he was a psychonaut as well okay. among the um, the pantheon of of psychedelics. <laughs> when did he um, live? Pioneers. Um, it was the seventies. He he's still. I think he's still around. I think he's still alive. But Dude. he. Oh my god. Changed his name from Richard Alpert, I think, to Ram Dass, and became an Eastern mystic and hmm. psychonaut. Anyway, at any rate, he was among them of Timothy Leary and mm. Gordon Wasson. And okay. Yeah. So he's and ac- so, academic? Yeah. So I saw this video that he did of, please, God, give me the memory of what, what he talked about. But so the first level is physical. You notice the physical traits of people, their, their tone, their, their body language, their body. Mm-hmm. Body. Um, as Jordan Peterson always says. Uh, and so you notice the physical and then you notice the psychological. So maybe they're uh, manic depressive, they're anxious or whatever is going on mentally. The third stage is, I believe, astrological sign, which mm-hmm. most people don't give credence to, but astrological sign. Yeah. So you're born at a certain time, you're thrown into this world, mm-hmm. as Jim Morrison and Heidegger said. And so, yeah, in a certain place in the cosmos. And then the fourth one is like, I don't remember how he specifically, I think it's like many or something. And so you, when you stare at another person, you look in their eyes, you see another soul reflected back. Not you, but you see another soul Mm -hmm. looking at you. And then the fourth, or the fifth one, am I on the fourth one or fifth one? One of them. You just described the fourth. Yeah. So the fifth one is one when you are looking back at you Mm. in their eyes. And then the last and final stage, the point of no return, is void. Nothing. Just absence of self. Hmm. And that's of a time of and space. So those are the levels of experience, kind of? Levels of, of conscious experience? Yeah, probably. I don't remember exactly what he was that describing. But whenever you're looking at a person, you first start with that. Hmm. Because you think about it, the physical, a car is like, that's a... Honda Fit, I am a Honda Fit. You d- mm-hmm. you describe you describe g- describe yourself with that, yourself. yeah. And then, as you get down, peel the onion layers, mm-hmm. you get to nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's the Buddhist concept of emptiness, complete nothing. It's not excluding anything. It's not I- including anything. Non-dual. Yeah, that that kind of goes back to um, I think and which is I think an Eastern concept, which is the tree of the universe, mm-hmm. which has different levels, and you're you know, when you're having these um, these experiences, these different kinds of experiences, you're you're either climbing or descending on the the tree of the universe, mm-hmm. the different branches, which kind of relates to your levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember. If, I think that's an Eastern. Because there principle. has to be a terminus somewhere. It can't be turtles all the way down. Like mm-hmm. the the origins have to be somewhere on the, on the timeline. Mm-hmm. But so that's how void comes into play Mm -hmm. is the that's the final stage of recognition or i I don't know at at least that we're comprehensible yeah with right who knows because you're just atoms in the void pretty much you're just pond scum as nietzsche said but what was i gonna say i I have a new question but Mm -hmm. take heart you're one with the universe you're 
the stuff that dreams are made on, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So what is the evolutionary purpose of the pineal gland and endogenous DMT? I mean, even Strassman questions that all the way to the end of the book, so I don't know if yeah. we, can, we can try. Yeah, just like... Well, why do we dream? I mean, it's just a show at night, pretty much. That's, how, that's, <laughs> my, that's my little cousin. He talked about the one that I mm-hmm. mentioned last podcast. He talked about how during the day your subconscious <coughs> or unconscious subconscious is repressed, all the desires mm-hmm. and, and the like, and then at night it comes out to play, and it's just uh, putting on a show for you. It's, it's a magic trick. It's like a release. It yeah. could be like yeah. a... Subconscious release yeah. or an unconscious release. It's but true. Well, that's what Freud talked about, right? It would talk about the, up the sexual desires mm-hmm. and them coming out in the dream at night. Yeah, you bottled up all these yeah. subconscious it's just a release. desires, and they have mm-hmm. to go somewhere. It's a reset. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you can as simple as so that. You can I take mean, more information the next day. Yeah, mm. but it, but I think it's also integrating the information that you encoded during the day, but I don't know how that has any any relation to what you're. Dreams you re- you read a math textbook and you you dream about an alien or, <laughs> like your your mom has a witch face or something. Mm-hmm. How does that relate at all to the yeah. quadratic formula? Yeah, I mean, maybe that was really what was going through your mind while you were doing you know studying or looking at a math textbook. <laughs> Instead of that, maybe, yeah, it could be all the subconscious or unconscious activity mm-hmm. that goes on combined into something and then it's like ah, i gotta, gotta get out somewhere yeah it's gonna be interesting the next i mean they're, they're developing technology i think right now they have about they've mapped um the brain to about ten thousand pixels so they can retrieve images of whatever you dreamt well you know while you're sleeping uh mm. to the resolution of about ten thousand pixels so you could oh. i don't know what Who's the they? dimension would that be i just know that's a technology that's available currently but in the future, I mean, they'll continue to increase that resolution until we probably can look at high-res pictures of whatever you're dreaming about. Do you think we'll get to a point to where you can dream anything you want? Eh, I don't you know. You can manipulate the brain chemistry. If if we learn enough about the brain in a minute and can, you know. What do you mean by that? Dream whatever you want. Yeah, that's kind of a... I don't know. Implant? And then... Dream like anything? It'd probably like just be lucid dreams, or yeah, yeah. Well, that'd probably just be lucid at that point because you just have, contr- you just have What's control. What's the difference between that and full dive VR? <sighs> we are already well getting away from reality yeah, <laughs> as it is. God, we are. Okay. We should probably. Well, somewhere. I'm not saying in that sense. I'm saying like we are. There's so many different things that we take and measures that we that we pursue to run away from reality mm-hmm. every day <laughs> <laughs> like that oh my like that uh, well I, m- I might be humor. a frog <laughs> <laughs> well Thomas like you were saying earlier the pineal gland is at the very center of the brain which means that it's also the most protected mm-hmm. so I think it shifted positions something mm-hmm. yeah it did shift over mm-hmm. time that's what Strassman talked about but there's obviously something very significant Valuable. about this uh, this gland. But how it's does true. that develop? How does one develop? That the pineal gland. The pineal I mean, gland? ants don't have a pineal gland, so how does these we apes? Oh, I th- I th- do you think apes were seeing machine elves? Hmm? Do, you, do you think that apes. chimps... You want to talk about the stoned ape theory yeah. you read about? Me or... You read... It's fruit of the gods, right? Yeah, I mean, he briefly... Alludes Who's to he? that, yeah. Who's he? Terrence McKenna. Okay. So talk about Terrence McKenna in his book *Food of the Gods* pro- propounds his stoned ape theory, which goes something like, "We, our ancestor ancestors, our chimpanzee ancestors, and Neanderthal, and all the way up to the Australopithecus. Yes, Australopithecus, and s- eventually sapiens mm-hmm. found." psychedelic mushroom psilocybin in the manure of cows mm-hmm. so that's why you get the Indian. brazen bowl imagery in bible in the bible 
and their disdain for any um, graven images or idolatry, anything in that manner, uh, because they realized that that kind of challenged the authority of the religion by inducing these mystical experiences and seeing God for themselves as opposed to having that imparted by a priest. Mm -hmm. So some higher authority. So, yeah. So the theory is that we, um, we were just bumbling along one day and then some homo sapien was like, Hmm. And just picked up a mushroom and then (laughs) our, 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 I don't know if it made that sound effect, but our brain ballooned three times in size over the course of twice. It was doubled in size. Oh, I think it was tripled. Really? But tripled. Yeah, tripled, yeah. Jeez. And, and yeah, and then so maybe at that point the pineal gland formed, but and how it did is beyond me. I mean... Mm-hmm. Well, to take into account that, or just to add to kind of crucial detail, that tripling in size, asterisk, um, took, oh, took place over an evolutionary short amount of time, which was like 2 million years, mm-hmm. which is apparently extremely fast. In terms of evolutionary time scale, it's extremely fast yeah. for something like that to happen, and that or and that, but it's also it it can also be attributed to like so the the counter argument to that is the uh, fire cooking meat and then less energy needed to break down food, more energy to um, expanding the brain. But yes, mm-hmm. uh, stone date theories. And so, what do you think about the? Ah, I don't remember exactly what the there was Darwinian evolution and. Then Lamarck or Lamarck is that right something evolution where what do you think about parents acquiring traits in the course of their lifetime and then is that able to be passed on to genes or does it come strictly from just down the line like your parents your parents your parents and you mean is it possible to not have a trait when you're born and develop it yeah, and then pass it uh, on to your kin. I don't know. Because that, I, I mean that that's that's almost necessary that don't, the for the stone ape theory to be plausible. Well, the thing is, isn't because even on an evolutionary time scale, I feel like there could be tiny changes in in DNA. Maybe that. Uh, that's. I mean, I guess it does have to. That does have to be true because on on some level, there has to be a somewhat of a a distinction between two generations right for any kind of change to occur there has to be like how slow is it you Mm -hmm. know there's got to be a this guy you know even if it's like 10 characters of dna 10 pairs Mm -hmm. it's still got to be different Hmm. right where is that where does that change occur when does it occur maybe during yeah it's just it's a great that's a great question do you have something you want to add? Or? Uh, well, just the fact that uh, magic mushrooms uh, promote the process of neurogenesis. So I guess our early ancestors that consumed this over the course of their lifetime, the ones that survived and passed on their, their genes, inevitably over time, that might have, that that's might true. be an explanation for... Yeah, if, if that's the theory of how consciousness arose, then... exactly. Yeah, I Maybe. guess neuro- neurogenesis could have been the origin. Or is consciousness everything? I mean, is the universe consciousness? Or it, was it like the panspermia well, theory? Well, it was it is it like the panspermia theory where there were mushrooms mm-hmm. on on a comet or something. Comet or something and then it, yep. it impacted the earth and then dispersed. There was some theory recently. These fungi mm-hmm. and then we Rose eventually happened. But also here's the question. Why did a T-Rex or a kangaroo never stumble upon these. Well, I don't mean they weren't. I, and it, and Terrence McKenna talks about we acquired the the ability to speak and the language from mushrooms. Sounds. That but why no other creatures? So what, what did Terrence say? I don't remember what he said. I'm just asking. Okay. I, I would say if I knew. Hmm. So uh, well, it's, this kind of sounds like a pretty large 
hole. Yeah, hole yeah. in his argument. Yeah. Or in his theory. So, do you think it is wise or... So, DMT uh, is likened to a near-death or death experienced by many of the volunteers. They experience mm-hmm. complete dissociation, um, uh, this overwhelming sensation of coming home, and many come back to reality saying that in a way they've died and returned to the land of living in a sense so for some people maybe this experiencing of death is beneficial but at the end of the book Strassman actually talks about how if somebody experimenting with DMT had a bad experience um, with quote unquote death is this necessarily a good thing? In other words, is it beneficial to experience death before the real thing? Well, yeah, the Buddhists talk about, yeah, dying before you die. Or, I mean, yeah, elusis, same thing. Yeah, preparing for your death. But as far as is DMT, do the benefits outweigh the cons? That's I would say it's an individual Um, does it render this life meaningless if you've been to the horizon and back and I wouldn't say so I I would say if anything it would give it more significance and I don't think any of the volunteers would say that either No, I think all the volunteers came back with something um, some kind of so what was their life change yeah what was their outlook well actually Strassman talks about how a lot of the people, they all had very profound experiences, but at the same time, it didn't change their lives in any real habitual way. Mm-hmm. That's actually something that he questions and uh, at the end of the book. Is this even a drug worth uh, exper- experimenting with in the future? Because mm-hmm. as far as he could tell, um, after the volunteers had their experiences and he would discuss with them, he would meet with them years later to d- discuss any any changes that might have occurred in their behavior, etc. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them just went on them with their lives, doing the I, same things that they had done in the past. I have a kind of a counterpoint to that. All the volunteers were had previous psychedelic experience. True. So they've already kind of been exposed to some of these ideas or different perspectives, altered perspectives. And I think something Strassman definitely took into account was I don't think any of them were clinically depressed or had any um, diagnosed mental illnesses. So are they really the ones that need, you know what I mean? It, are they, you know, they, they, any, any habitual changes that they may, they may have made in their lives could have been years before. Okay, you know? well, how about a general question applying to our lives? Say that you see God or see aliens mm-hmm. or see machine elves experience death complete dissolution of yourself yep you are not here you are somewhere else for 10 minutes but Mm -hmm. it feels like eternity to you and then you come back Mm -hmm. how does that change your life does it have to be eternity what are you talking about (laughs) the the time is irrelevant he's just saying experience Hmm. it it feels like eternity to you but in real time it's 10 minutes Mm -hmm. Time is relative. You, did you say would it change or how, well, how would, would it, how would it change your perspective uh, on it? It would depend on the experience. I feel like sure, but I mean I I, I don't know. It's just but say in general, say you have a near death experience. Say you die. You I mean you're dead. You probably for, value life. You probably value t- you know every second that you're mm-hmm. experiencing more. I, I I don't know. Does it make the meaningful. drug? Or, I mean, does it make the the pill of death easier to swallow. I think. I think it. Probably I would, would think it would. Mm. I would think For it would. People, it would at least give you a taste of beyond, you know. And I don't know. I don't. I can't. Because see how, the how do they describe that. the feeling of beyond? Is it just oneness? Oneness. Is it bliss? Well, is it, it any on the particular emotion? It depends on the experience. Right. But the one that seems the, the most unifying and the most. Um, uni- yeah, I mean, unifying would be the transpersonal, which would just be seeing, yeah, objective reality as it is, and on a cosmic scale or on a universal scale, however you want to see it, and both at the same time on a macro scale and a micro scale, you know, DNA helix, all these, you know, 
atoms, everything, you know, as it is. And they usually come back with a sense of profound... Or they, they feel more unified with things. They feel, yes, definitely more at peace. Um, more unified with the universe, with, you know, their reality mm -hmm. or whatever their reality is. Their issues, their, you know, how does it experience. How does it make your... Your pursuits and your goals, if you like, know what awaits you. Probably futile. Why not end it now? But we're, the thing is, we're still human. We're still human. We still have to operate within these. So he, this being meat bag. Hum, human is a being human is not a fact but a task. Is that how you would view it? Sure. This you world, a, this world a dharma, is not the a moral obligation. This world is somewhat of a waiting area. Seems right. So why not get a get it all over? I no. This is this is a if stage. You know, if you know what that's a but this is a what stage. awaits you. But it could, it, but depending on your actions in this stage could affect. Your actions in this stage could affect the next stage. So you think Yahweh or Ludamare or, um, oh God, what's the? It doesn't matter. Was a Zoroaster, right. <laughs> the God. But anyway, do you think that the the High God weighs your deeds? I don't know. I, Is that what you're talking again, about? Again, I mean, this kind of goes back to Peterson's point of operating as if God exists or if, right. if there's some higher judgment. But why be nice to anybody well. if you know that's what awaits you regardless of your actions? But we don't life. know if it's regardless. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know if it's regardless. Because some, some of the volunteers had terrible experiences. Depending on their... Yes, but them. is that just and the factor is out of their control? Could have been, and also... It, Strassman didn't really go into the victim it, of certain fate. people who had uh, terrifying, nightmarish DMT experiences, which was wasn't many of the volunteers, but it was a, a couple, a couple yeah. of them. He didn't go into depth on their own personal, you know, flaws or their who knows what they've what they done so to people think, in the past. Who knows? So you think that the guy who was raped by two crocodiles was an evil? He also didn't have any experience. He didn't have any prior ex psychedelic experience, right? He just had taken uh, MDMA like 40 times, for like 100 times or something. Well, the final thing, I want Colin to go through his dream, and that kind of needs to be the wrap-up. Okay, so, real fast. Less than five minutes, and go. We'll give some context to what this is. Okay, so I had a dream a long while ago. It was very DMT-like, where I saw alien-like entities, and it was very brief, but very vivid. It wasn't lucid, but it was very vivid. And, and rain okay, so with bright neon signs that light up the strip like Vegas or Blade Runner. I duck into a shop similar to the fake ID shop in Breaking Bad. So the the um, vacuum guy. And it's selling fishing gear, and but it's just a front for illicit business. And so I come up with an old guy, an old Chinese guy at the counter. He's hunched over like Quasimodo. He's like, hmm, I can help you out today. And he has his back turned to me. He's just, just whistling nonchalantly and has a very jovial Duchesne smile on his face and very brightly. So I appear as come back with him, returns moments later, and hands me a soccer player-like card stack of fake IDs. And they're all the exact same. I'm like, what the heck, man? I didn't need this much. And they're like Pokemon cards. And so he just chortles again. He's like, no matter. And he just shows me out the door. And so then Iris Fade, like Lucasfilm, Iris Fade to a conference room or a conference or a senate room or something like Star Wars. And or maybe it's a classroom. I don't know. I, can't, I don't really know the picture. But I have a side on view of the entity in front of me, like a profile. Mm -hmm. And the for Harry Potter, Thanatos, Grim Reaper, Grim Reaper looking creature. And he's facing forward towards the classroom. And I'm on the side. And the rest of the aliens are in the periphery. Their floating heads are like the, I don't know how to say the term, but Kaminoans in Star Wars, like the floating necks mm. in Episode 2. Mm -hmm. So they're like very in the distance, like balloons. And suddenly, a murmur of un unintelligible gibberish cuts through the air. So they're like, And what the heck is going on? And he's looking directly at me. And his face is appears from under his hood like a turtle out of the shell. And bright, earth-blue, glowing, two-button-like eyes that are vertical. 
nothing else just two bright blue eyes no mouth no nose and it appears if he's looking through me or beyond me and then so i'm like what the, what are they looking at i turn around do a 360 a dazzling white mass is approaching like an ezekiel vision or something and the four line my little of course in the bible and there's this door that's approaching me and it's floating in the air it's this um bright mass and it's shaped like a rectangle and i it looks like i could walk through it like monsters inc door or something and i'm just like is this god and that that's the end of the dream so well, <laughs> interpret that what you will folks there's a lot of that could be deemed really deemed really during rhyme sleep which um, yeah interpret all the endless possibilities from all the subtle details that he just described on your own uh, we will see you guys in the next episode next week and thank you for tuning in